John Blanchard in his little book entitled Ultimate Questions observes that life is full of questions. We have questions about our health, about our finances, about our jobs, our families. Yes, even about the future. Life is full of questions. And in that book he says that there are more important questions than these other tremendously important questions. Questions like, is there anyone out there? Is God speaking? Or who am I? These, he says, are more important questions that confronts us all. But one of the greatest questions that you and I must grapple with always is the question Jesus asked of the disciples. But who do you say that I am? The question of the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus Christ? When we answer that question and we turn to the biblical revelation, Scripture answers the question about Jesus in a variety of ways. First of all, it tells us that He is the eternal Son of God, or the Son of Man, the light of the world, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is described in Scripture as the Savior. But there is another description of Jesus that is not often reflected upon at Christmas, which I think that is, is, is essential. Because while we, we talk about Christ at, at Christmas as Emmanuel, God with us, and that is a fundamental description of the identity of Christ, there is nevertheless another description of Christ that must be a theme of Christmas. Because we cannot understand Emmanuel, God without God with us, apart from this description. And that description of Christ is what? It is mediator. You can't understand Jesus Christ as God with us unless you know him as mediator. And so I want to reflect upon this great and glorious mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul draws attention to Jesus as mediator in writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, in 1 Timothy, in chapter 2, where in verse 5 of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. The Apostle Paul writes Timothy, who we believe at this time was in the church in Ephesus. And he writes him to rein in false teachers, people who were engaged in debate and discussion about unprofitable things, including genealogies and other speculations. He also writes Timothy to insist upon and to establish proper behavior or conduct within the church in Ephesus. But in chapter 2, he calls upon the church of Ephesus, primarily through Timothy, to be a praying church, 
So he says in verse 1 of chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, he says, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, variety of prayers he's talking about, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And he describes the all men in terms of the different categories of men. For kings and for all who are in authority, whether they be magistrates or governors or other officials, prayer shall be made for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. So he says the church must be a praying church. And we must pray for all ranks of men, including those who are political leaders, those who are rulers over us. And the reason he gives, in fact, must be seen, first of all, that we may lead a quiet and peace, peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Because the leaders, political leaders, by their decisions can affect how we live, we are to pray. We are to pray for them because they, to some extent, impact even how we live as Christians in a society, the rules that they make, the, the things that they implement. We must pray that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. He says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. He gives another reason. In fact, a greater reason for prayer for those who are over us. He says, God our Savior, in verse 4, desires all men, all different ranks and categories of men, all men, without distinction of rank or position, God desires all men to be saved. We should pray for them because God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And he explains, he's going to give evidence now in verse 5, why it is that God desires all categories of men to be saved. He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. In other words, God desires all categories of men because God has provided one mediator, and that one mediator has died for all men, whatever their rank or position in life may be. We want us to look then at this idea of Christ as the mediator. I want us to look first at the singularity of the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we're going to take up the humanity of the mediator, and finally, the generosity of the mediator. But first of all, the singularity. The Apostle Paul says we are to pray for all men. For there is one God and one mediator right there. At first blush, you see the singularity, the uniqueness of this mediator. The Apostle Paul does something very interesting here. Because in verse 5, he alludes to the Shema that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It was the basic creedal affirmation. The entire edifice of Jewish religion was built upon this one affirmation. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. That is, there is no other divine being in the universe. That there is one God, 
Israel affirmed that against the nations. The Apostle Paul, however, does something rather interesting because he takes this basic creedal statement of Israel and he says there is one God and every Jew would have said absolutely so. But the Apostle Paul links to it something else. He says there is only one God and one mediator. Not only is the Father then, God the Father, unique, but the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, he says is unique. You see the Apostle Paul referring to to the singularity not only of God, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a unity in God. But though God is one spiritual being, God nevertheless has three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul says there's one God and one mediator. He makes a similar statement regarding Christ as the one mediator and God as the one Father. Elsewhere, when he writes to the Corinthians, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 8, 5 to 6, there was a debate over whether uh, whether believers could eat meat that was offered first to the gods in the pagan temples. And there were many Christians who were incensed about that. You know, you know if, 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 if somebody brought meat and offered it to the, the idol and then took it to the market and sold it, should Christians be eating that meat? It's been given and offered up before idols. And Paul says, really, this matter of eating of meat, at least here in chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 8, he says it's a matter of indifference. It's, it's neither here or there, whether you eat meat offered to idols or not. And he gives a reason why it's a matter of indifference in chapter 8, Verse 5 and 6, he says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. You see, the, Paul goes on to characterize the Lord Jesus Christ as mediator because he says, through whom are all things, meaning it is through him that God created all things and through whom we live. So this mediator, the Lord, one Lord, one God, one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, through whom God created all things and through whom we live, through whom God sustains all things. So Christ is the mediator, the mediator of creation and the mediator of the preservation of creation. And so Paul says, in, in, in essence, Paul says, whether you eat meat offered in a pagan temple to an idol, it's nothing. Because there are not many gods. These idols are not gods. There is only one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made all things and through whom we live. So Paul there identifies Christ as the mediator, not, in, not, not by definite word, but in concept and in idea. The writer of Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the mediator of the better covenant. Chapter 8, 6, chapter 9, verse 15. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. But in 1 Timothy, Paul presents Jesus Christ as the only mediator. And the only mediator, not of creation, that is true. Not even of the new covenant, that is true. But of salvation. Pray for all men. For there is only one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We need to take a look at this term mediator before we press on. The term mediator literally means in the middle. So a mediator is a middleman. Somebody 
whose task was to stand between two opposing factions and reconcile them. Now, Paul says that between God the Father and men, mankind, stands one mediator. One person able to reconcile us to God. There's only one mediator between God and men. Now, now when you hear a statement like that, if, if you've been reading the Old Testament, that might pose a question. Because you know that in the Old Testament, there were other mediators between God and men. Chiefly among them were the priests. The role of the Old Testament priest was to act as a bridge. He was to act as a conduit. He was standing between God and the people of Israel. And perhaps the greatest Old Testament mediator, well not perhaps, but really the greatest Old Testament mediator, if we go along with Galatians 3 and verse 19, the greatest mediator in the Old Testament was Moses. Because it was through him that the law was mediated. Yet we need to understand that the Old Testament mediators, whether they be angels or whether they be the priests or Moses, they were not the ultimate mediator. They were limited and temporary in their role. Moses was a mediator in the house of God. But Christ is mediator over the house of God. You see, Moses, though he was a mediator, one who stood between God and the people, who prayed for them, who led them along the ways of God. Moses himself needed a mediator because he was still a sinful man. We saw that when he was told, when Israel needed water to drink, he was told to speak to the rock. And what did he do? He struck the rock in disobedience. And because of that, he was forbidden to enter the promised land. He could only see it from afar. Moses, Israel's greatest mediator, needed Jesus Christ. And there was always this longing in the Old Testament. You have Job, when he was suffering, says, Oh, that there were a mediator between me and you. He was longing for a mediator. Someone to represent him. Someone to stand in the bridge between him and God. Someone to be in the middle. And the entirety of the Old Testament is a looking forward to a coming mediator. You see, there were mediators, but Jesus is the mediator. The ultimate and true mediator. Paul says there is only one God. And one mediator between God and men. And the fact that he singles out Christ as mediator implies at least two things. First, it implies that the infinite barrier that separates us from God, the infinite barrier created by our sins uh, that separated us from God can only be removed and we can only be restored to God by Jesus Christ. Listen, you don't need a mediator if there's no problem. Right? You, the only time a mediator is required is when there's a problem, and particularly a legal problem. And sin, first of all committed in the garden by Adam, placed us in legal jeopardy, estranged us from God, 
separated us from the holy God. Sins that we have committed have made us enemies of God because these are not just picadillos. These are seen as deliberate, high-handed acts of offense and rebellions against a holy God and places us in grave liability so that we fall under the wrath of God. It is indeed Moses who asked the question, who knows the power of thy wrath? Sin places us under the anger of God. And not only that, it leads to eternal death or damnation, separation, or hell. And for us then to be reconciled to God, it takes somebody greater than ourselves. There's only one mediator that God recognizes who is able to mediate him to us and mediate man to him. It is the man Christ Jesus. It means, therefore, that it is the infinite demerit or barrier of sin that requires one greater than ourselves to restore us to a right relationship with God. But there's a second, implement, in, 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 uh, a, a second issue that arises, a second matter that develops out of the fact that there's only one mediator. And the implication is this. That if Jesus Christ is the only one who can perfectly satisfy God and reconcile us to him, that he himself must be viewed not only as greater than man, but God. And the argument goes like this. I understand it may sound like a non-secretary, but it goes something like this. God is perfect. And for God to be perfectly pleased, one himself must be perfect. Jesus Christ, therefore, this singular mediator is able to satisfy God because he's not just an elevated man, but because he's God. Now I understand that Paul does not say that here. He does not tell us that in chapter 2 that the mediator is God the Son. But when you look at how Paul describes Christ in this epistle to Timothy, he says here in verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But if you flip back to chapter 1 where Paul speaks about the Lord Jesus, you understand that Paul views him first and foremost as God. So he begins in chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout 1 Timothy, he will refer to Christ as the Lord Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. The same thing is repeated in verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. And in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Thus, when the Apostle Paul says there is one mediator and focuses on the singularity of this mediator, it means he alone can deal with our sins and he alone can do so because he is God himself. The one who came then 2,000 years ago in a manger is the coming of God the Son. So we see the singularity. There is no other mediator. 
No other way we may go to God. No other way in which our sins can be dealt with but in Jesus Christ, the only mediator. And by the way, this is a mediator that God has established. But if you see the singularity of the mediator, I want to suggest that the emphasis of the passage and of these two verses here in 1 Timothy 2 is not just on his singularity but on his humanity. For the Apostle Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And if you take the phrase, the man, and you emphasize it, you see that the Apostle Paul brings to us this notion that our mediator is the man, Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul views the humanity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus Christ was a real man, as essential to the identity of Jesus Christ. And you will see that throughout his epistles, he insists on that. That the historical Jesus, born to the Virgin Mary, through the supernatural work of the Spirit, who lived for 33 years, who died and rose and reigns over his kingdom, the one who performed the miracles on earth, this one is man. Not exclusively man, but genuinely man. And there are many references in the Pauline epistles to this reality. You know, we, we think of Christ's manhood, the fact that he was a human, as, well, taken for granted. It's no real issue to say Christ was a man. And even those who oppose Christ will have no difficulty in seeing him as a historical figure. But what is, what is so easy to accept amongst us, the humanity of Christ, was very different in the early church. If you take the period between, okay, A.D. 100 and 325 A.D., there were a number of controversies and heresies in the church. And one of the most enduring heresies during the period 100 to 325 A.D. was the heresy which denied that Jesus Christ was truly man. In other words, there were those who came from a Gnostic perspective. The Gnostics, those who believe in superior knowledge. They were steeped in Greek philosophy, who believed that there was a dualism between matter and spirit. So they would have viewed, for example, the human body, the physical body, as evil. They thought that matter, the physicality, was evil. And the spirit or the soul was good. So they thought of us as human beings, our souls, which are good, are trapped in our bodies, which are bad and evil. And because of their view, this dualism between matter and spirit, they could not accept that the sovereign God of heaven would come to earth and dwell in a body that is evil. And they rejected Jesus Christ, his humanity. So what they said, they said Jesus Christ only seemed, he only appeared. He only appeared to be human, but he was never a real human being. They found it very difficult to stomach the idea that the king of heaven, the lord of heaven, should come into a sinful world and inhabit a body that they saw as intrinsically evil. Yet the Apostle Paul reminds us over against Greek dualism, 
and against the questioning of men that our Lord Jesus Christ was truly man. We see that in several passages, but let me just quote a few for you. In Galatians 4, 4 and 5, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. You know, the very language of sending forth the Son uh, speaks to his pre-existence. He couldn't be sent forth if he was not already in existence. God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. There he refers to the humanity of Christ, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. And in that classical text on the humanity of Jesus, Philippians 2, 5, and 6, 5 to 8, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, who existed then as God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance that is in the reality as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death to the, on the cross. In this epistle of 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul will insist on the humanity of the Lord Jesus because in 1 Timothy 3.16 he says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifested, God appeared in the flesh, justified by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. In 2 Timothy 2, in verse 8, he says that remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David, the spermatos of the seed of the, of the descent of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. It was the 11th century theologian Anselm of Canterbury who asked the question, why did God become man? In that book, Cur Deus Homo, why did God become man? And Anselm in fact, we need to understand that at least in the 11th century, Anselm had a, a greater insight than many of his contemporaries and even those before him in the Dark Ages. Because Anselm says that, that Christ has come to satisfy the divine honor that man had violated when, when we disobeyed God. And that is true. But we need to understand that our Lord Jesus Christ came for more reasons than simply to, to satisfy divine honor. We need to understand first and foremost that Christ had to be man. First and foremost, to identify with us. When we need and we look for a mediator, what's the essential quality that you must have in a mediator? Well, we may say neutrality. Neutrality. We want a mediator who is defined by impartiality. So let's say, for example, you are unfortunate to find yourself in a legal dispute with your work, the company you work for. And that dispute was referred to mediation. And you, you're not going to go to mediation. And you find that the mediator is a friend of the boss of the company for which you work. In fact, these guys golf every Friday. You're not going to be terribly pleased to have this fellow 
deal with your matter because you're going to feel that the man is not impartial, that he's going to somehow skew justice, skew justice to, to help his friend. You want a mediator who is impartial, disinterested, who has, as they say, no horse in this race. But the essential quality of the mediator in the scripture is not impartiality. In fact, we have been tremendously blessed because our mediator is not impartial. In fact, our mediator is the most partial of mediators. You see, you and I, we need a partial mediator. Someone to take our side in the dispute with God. Because without that, we are lost. You see, in the Old Testament, the priest had to be partial to Israel. He had to be born from Israelite stock. He had to be a real person, not an angel. That he might be able to represent his people sympathetically. And the scriptures remind us that Christ became man in order to identify with those whom he represents. And that is why the scriptures make it clear. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people in Hebrews 2.17. He became man to identify with us. We can never say that our mediator is not one of us. He became a real man, a living man, a man with feelings, a man who suffered temptation without sin. He was human in every respect. He came to live the life unto God that we were unable and incapable of living. But not only did he become man to identify with us, he came, became man to restore us to our destiny. When you read the Apostle Paul, for instance, in Romans chapter 5, you see this argument that he develops, his structures around the first Adam. And he tells us the first Adam led us into sin and into ruin. The image of God, man, was corrupted because of sin. We lost our destiny to rule over God's creation as his vice regent because of sin in Adam. In other words, Adam led us into ruin. So God sends a second or a last Adam to recover man, man who has been ruined by the fall. God sends the Lord Jesus Christ as the last Adam to recover our destiny. And that is why you would have the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, 17 saying, For if by one man's offense, referring to Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Adam led us into sin, and with sin came death and destruction and ruin and eternal misery. But Jesus Christ, the last Adam has come, who has kept all of God's will, who has done everything perfectly on our behalf, and because of that, he has brought righteousness and life. You see, we needed a real man to live a real human life so that he may satisfy God, that he might indeed restore that which had been ruined by Adam. But this mediator must be man. Ultimately, because he had to die. 
We cannot understand the cradle apart from the cross. The, what I'm saying is that the, the, the manger makes no sense without the cross. He had to be a real man with a real body that he may die. You see, God could satisfy. God indeed couldn't reconcile us to himself. But for him to do so, he needed a body. And that is why in the womb of Mary, he created a body that he might die and pay for our sins. So we see that Jesus Christ was really man. He came to identify with us. He came to restore us to our destiny by leading us out of the ruin in which Adam had led us. And he came ultimately that he may possess a real body, that he may offer a real sacrifice. You see, you need to understand this. The cross and the manger are inextricably linked. When you read the Old Testament, you read the book of Exodus, you're going to have their descriptions of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was that movable tent that Israelites carried around with them in which God's presence was housed in the most holy place. The tabernacle had two sections. It had the first section divided by a curtain, which was the holy place in which the priest made offerings. But it had also the second compartment, the last compartment, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God dwelt between the cherubim. That was where God's presence locally was in the tabernacle. But outside of the tabernacle, this movable tent, you had the entire nation of Israel surrounding the tabernacle. And as you come into the precinct, the compound of the tabernacle, what was the first thing that you saw? The first thing that you saw was the altar. It was there placed before the tabernacle on the east side. That anyone who wanted to draw near to the presence of God had to go through the altar of sacrifice. And you see, the, the, the very position of the altar of sacrifice was essential to make this one point. That if there is to be any relationship with God, any closeness or intimacy with God, it required sacrifice. And for you and for me to have a relationship with God, blood must be shed. Sacri there must be a sacrifice. We can only go through Christ, our sacrificial lamb, in order to come to God the Father. You see, he had to have a body because he had to present a sacrifice for our sins. My friends, we see the singularity. There's only one mediator between God and man. We see the humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. But we see something of the generosity of this mediator. For the apostle uh, explains in verse 2 regarding this mediator, he says, who gave himself as a ransom for all. To be testified in due time. How did Christ reconcile us? How did Christ make a payment? Well, it was not by shrewd negotiation. It was not by presenting compelling arguments to God. How did he reconcile men? It was not by twisting the arm of God and exacting the last measure of grace out of him. Because God is the one who sent him in the first place in love and grace. How did he how did he then mediate between us and God? Well, the scriptures remind us that he did so by personal donation. By a donation. 
a donation of himself. The writer makes it clear that this donation of himself to God is first of all, this self-giving of Christ is first of all a voluntary act. Christ came as mediator to give himself as a volunteer. What I'm arguing is that Christ volunteered to be our savior. He gave himself. It was a voluntary act. He gave himself. And the apostle Paul, while scripture insists that God has given the son, he has delivered over his son, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. But he also reminds us that Christ gave himself. The father gave him, but he gave himself. You see, Paul is reflecting upon our Lord's own words in Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, for many. The Apostle Paul can say in Galatians 1, 3 and 4, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. He makes the same point in Ephesians 2 and verse 20. Or Galatians 2 verse 20, he says, that he loved me and gave himself for me. In Ephesians 5, 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You see, this, the Lord Jesus Christ is a generous mediator. He gave himself and his act was a voluntary act. But this was a, self, was a sacrificial act because it says he gave himself for all. That is, as a ransom for all. And this language of ransom refers to the price that has been paid to deliver one from captivity and bondage. Our mediator in his great love has come to give himself as a ransom. The ransom is the payment by which one is released from captivity and bondage. And the apostle Paul will speak about this. In him, he says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. He has come to redeem us, to deliver us by his sacrificial giving of himself in death. To release us from the condemnation of the law. To deliver us from lawlessness. You see, our redeemer, our mediator has come and paid the price for our sins that we may not be condemned. His, his work of mediation is indeed voluntary and sacrificial because he gave not another but himself. And this self-giving thirdly must be seen as a substitutionary act. Not only is it voluntary and not only must it be seen as sacrificial giving of himself but it is substitutionary. He gave himself, he says, as a ransom for all. And the all here must be interpreted contextually. You're to pray for all men, regardless of their rank, regardless of their station, because Christ has given himself as a ransom for all men of whatever rank or category they may be in. And so we see that our Lord Jesus Christ came. The entire Christmas story is that God has come and he has become man in Jesus Christ in order to redeem sinners. This is a marvelous and gracious act in Christ stepping into our world and bearing our sins. It's the generosity and the kindness and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord, that even though he was rich, he became poor. It's the most stupendous news. 
But Jesus Christ, in all of his love, in all of his kindness, became a real man and paid a real price by dying on the cross and being a ransom for our sins. And this has a number of implications. This has a number of implications. Let me just stress a few. Because Jesus Christ is the only mediator, it means that he is first and foremost indispensable. Indispensable. The reality is that none of us is indispensable. We we may think that the world revolves around us. That, That may be the case. We may think us has to be very important. We, you, 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 you may think that your office cannot work without you. You know, if you got sick, the entire place will close down. But you know, at the end of the day, we aren't, we aren't indispensable. People go on without us. And, and you may be surprised to know that they even succeed without us. We aren't indispensable. That, that, that's a reality. What Jesus Christ is. There's only one mediator between God and man. Only one person can reveal God to mankind. It is Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is the living God in flesh. We know God face to face in Jesus Christ. And in an age of neo-materialism, where we believe only the things that we can see and touch are true. And therefore, on this premise, God does not exist because we cannot see or touch him. God has revealed himself in concrete manner. He has come in flesh, in Christ. And he lived amongst us as the indispensable Christ. And only Jesus Christ, who is indispensable, can bring us salvation. It means first then that there is no other way to salvation than in Christ. The Roman Catholic Church for centuries have said the church, the Roman Catholic Church is the mediator of salvation. That is, you could not be saved unless you're part of the Roman Catholic Church. We have many who propose that they are mediators spiritual leaders who can bring you to a relationship with God. But the Bible has categorically, once and for all, says that there is one way to God. It is in Christ. There is only one mediator between God and man. And therefore, if you are to be saved, if you are to be delivered from sin, you must come to Christ. This Christmas, it is not just good enough to know about him. It's not good enough just to take off your hat and to salute him. It's not good enough to have kind thoughts about him. You must surrender to him because there is no way to God except through Jesus Christ. You can choose your own path. And you may follow the path of the world, but it will never lead you to God. But if you come with humility, step down from your high horse and fall on your face before Christ. And receive him as your Lord and as your Savior. Put all of your faith and all of your confidence in the one approved by God. And embrace him as your Savior. You will be saved. Saved in this world 
and more importantly saved in the world to come. Delivered finally and fully from the wrath of God and from eternal separation. You see, Christ is indispensable for the knowledge of God. Christ is indispensable for salvation. There is salvation in no other name than in the name of Jesus Christ. But if Christ is indispensable based on this reasoning, you need to understand that he is the suitable mediator. Not only the indispensable mediator, but the suitable mediator. He is Emmanuel, God with us. But he's the man, Christ Jesus, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He's man. And so the writer of Hebrews puts it in a delicious way. He says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. He puts it negatively, but if you reverse it, he says, but we do have a high priest who can sympathize with us. Why? Because he is the man Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. He can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Because he was in all points tempted as we are. Not only must we then go to Christ for salvation. We must know and we must rejoice in him. We must have the confidence in him. That he who has redeemed us is like us man. Fully God and fully man who will not abandon us or leave us to fail. But notice, my friends, Paul says there is only one mediator between God and man. Christ is not only the indispensable mediator, and not only is he the suitable mediator, but he is also the available mediator. There's only one. And you know, Christ today still is the mediator. Henry VIII is notorious in history because of his six wives. And you know, there's a man called Thomas More. They describe him as a man for all seasons. Because Thomas More was a man who stood up against Henry VIII when he wanted to get rid of his wife Catherine of Aragon to marry Anne Boleyn. And Thomas More refused. He wouldn't go along with Henry VIII. And it is said of Thomas More that he was a man for all seasons. Because during that period, during the seasons and different circumstances, Thomas More remained steadfast. A man for all seasons. My friends, you need to know that Jesus Christ is the man for all seasons. He remains today. And he remains tomorrow. The same mediator. So when we are weighed down by our sinfulness, we can come to him. Because John says, if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When our souls condemn us, when the world condemns us, when Satan condemns us, we can go to Christ. Because we have in him, even today, a contemporaneous mediator, a mediator who lives, who stands in heaven on our behalf. And when we go to him for all our needs, our financial and physical needs, he's there in heaven still adjudicating, ruling on our behalf and for our good. He exists in heaven for his glory and for your good. 
You have a mediator who is on the job, who never quits, who never gives in, who reigns and rules for you and for your good. Christ is the ever-living mediator. It means, my friends, that you must glorify him and worship him. Paul says there is only one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified, to be proclaimed in due time. And we proclaim him this Christmas, the unique mediator. May God move you to trust him and to depend on him for his sake. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, how good and gracious, how kind, how infinitely rich, how stupendously wise in doing what we could not do, in redeeming us to yourself and not outsourcing the job to another, but coming in your own person, in the person of the Son, Jesus Christ, and reconciling us to yourself. And so we praise you today because salvation is of God. We thank you for Jesus, who always, always reigns for us. We ask, Lord, that even on this day, you would break hardened hearts, that they would see the beauty and the wonder and the grace of Christ, that they may be moved to love, to wonder, and to praise. And for us, we pray today, grant that in a world of strife and stress, we may know that we have in Jesus one who is our surety, our guarantor, who is always available for us. We pray, Lord, that we may know him more and more, that we may love him with a deeper, abiding love. And we pray that this Christmas, that we may see Christ as mediator and glorify him in this sense for his sake. Amen.